Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, what a blessing to be able to sit and to study and to learn of you, to soak up the Spirit, to let the, the washing of the water of the Word pour through us, uh, to cleanse us, to heal us, to strengthen us. Uh, Father, we... Take these opportunities seriously. Even though they are fun, uh, they are in fact uh, our duty, our mandate, that we should um, um, continue to uh, learn of you and to seek your face and to study and to um, uh, seek to uncover deeper meanings from uh, the, the Word of God. And so for that reason, Lord, we avail ourselves of your Spirit, for indeed, without the Ruach HaKodesh guiding our actions, uh, we would would easily misunderstand what the text is saying. And, of course, we would never be, be able to come to a place where we could practically apply it in our lives. Or there wouldn't be any healing, there wouldn't be any uh, uh, correction, any reproving. And so we, we uh, invite you, Holy Spirit, into this study so that you can take preeminence, so that you can remind us of the words of Yeshua, the Master, so that you can um, uh, allow the words to sink deep into our heart uh, where the change can take place, uh, reminding us of sin and, and uh, uh, convicting us of wrongdoing and giving us a reason to praise God for our redemption. Thank you, Lord, that you have secured the way for us uh, through your Son's blood. And it's not by self-effort, it's not by human ingenuity. Uh, as we study the text, we're going to find out that it's not by Jewish ethnicity or any conformity to any man-made rules out of the Torah or anything like that. No such halakha can bring us into a genuine and right, a lasting right relationship with you. Uh, but it is only by surrendering and yielding to the work of the Spirit as He works through uh, the words that are preached and the, the, the text that is that is expounded upon. And so I thank you, Lord, that, that this is your tool. These are your ways of making a man righteous in your sight. Continue to bless us as we just kind of poke along uh, verse by verse, paragraph, uh, paragraph by paragraph through my commentary. I thank you for the students who are able to join me week by week. I ask that you'll continue to bless them and raise them up and give them a heart to do good and a heart to know you and to seek your face. Uh, thank you for protecting us from the adversary during these dark and evil days. Continue to heal us, Lord, and we will be healed. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and thanks in Yeshua's name, Amen. 
Okay, well, welcome everyone once again to uh, another study in the book of Galatians. Uh, my name is Ariel, and I'm glad to be with you. I hope that you can uh, join me week by week uh, via Skype. Uh, all you need is an internet connection and Skype itself. Head on out to my website at tatesatora.com and click on the link that says Galatians Commentary. You can find all the relevant information there for joining the study. There are, um, of course, written notes that you can follow along with. They're, like I said, a little shy of 200 pages. And there's also uh, continuing audio recordings that I make week by week. I speak live, but I realize that not everyone can make it live. So I record the, the sessions each week, and then I, uh, after editing them, I upload them to my webpage as well as uh, park them on the iTunes store for anyone to download for free. So you can grab them at either location. Um, one thing I'd like to remind everyone is that uh, we only meet for about an hour each week, uh, 45 minutes to an hour or so, and the, the, the commentaries are recorded live. However, there is a live after chat session, uh, kind of a Q&A session after each live talk, that is available only to the participants who join me each week live by Skype. So you are encouraged to come out. We'd love to have you join us uh, via live, the, the Skype chat. Uh, we can just kind of chat with one another afterwards. We can uh, make do, you know, do Q and A or or just uh, pray with one another. Whatever the Lord leads us into at that time. So, come on out. Also, um, just want to remind everyone that um, I'm a, a long-standing member of Congregation Kehilat Tenuva, which is my home congregation, Messianic congregation for Jews and Gentiles, in Thornton, Colorado. Even though I reside halfway around the world in Asia. Uh, I invite you out to the congregation each week. Pastor Mark McClellan's the senior pastor, and uh, he and I are are in, uh, pretty much uh, agreement with everything that I'm teaching uh, here on on my website. So um, I'd love to uh, have you uh, maybe pop into our congregation sometime if you actually live in the Denver area. Okay, tell them Ariel sent you. Okay, let's get started. Today is uh, let's date stamp our recording. Today is June twenty fourth, two thousand seventeen. And this is week 63 as we plug along through the Galatians commentary. We are going to be looking at the second clause of Galatians chapter 12 tonight. And I think we should be able to finish the uh, the, the notes on this particular verse. Uh, we've taken two weeks to do it. Uh, broken it up into the two clauses, the first half and the second half of the verse, as it were. And I think we'll be able to finish it tonight. Also, um, just right after the liturgy, as you're going to find out, um, I want to alert you to the fact that I made a lot of corrections to last week's written notes. I, as I went through and uh, reread what I wrote, and as I reviewed the audio session that I taught last week, I wasn't I wasn't uh, satisfied with the clarity of the content. I I felt that it was maybe just a bit ambiguous in in some places, and it didn't really convey what I was trying to say. So I went back and rewrote a good portion of last week's commentary. However, I don't want to take up this week and simply reteach what I taught last week. So instead, what I'm going to encourage you to do uh, after we read the liturgy and after today's commentary, go back and reread last week's notes. Start with uh, uh, what we call what I'm calling a fray, uh, uh, clause one. Just go back and read clause one all over again, and then uh, and then let that lead you into clause two. In other words, read my whole commentary to Galatians. 
verse, chapter 3, verse 12 all over again, if you've already read it once and you were a bit confused, I think the reread will help clarify some of the confusing things that I said last week. And I do apologize. All right, without further ado, let's read the um, liturgy for the night. Uh, this time for the Hebrew, I'm going to read the uh, just the, the traditional um, Birkat HaTorah uh, instead of reading the Leviticus passage because we're going to get to the Leviticus passage actually in the commentary tonight. So for the Hebrew, let's read this just this blessing for the Torah. English part comes first. It reads, Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth, in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you, and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's read the Hebrew corresponding to that. It reads, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotai v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah v'ha'arev na Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torahtcha b'finu u'vfi amcha b'et Yisrael v'nichye anachnu v'tzetzeinu v'tzetzei amcha b'et Yisrael kulanu yodei Shmecha volom de Torah lishma. Baruch Adonai Hamlamid Torah Lamo Yisrael. Baruch Adonai Loheno Melacha Olam. Asher Bachar Banu Mekol Haamin. Venatan Lanu et Torato. Baruch Adonai Notain Ha Torah. Iverecha Adonai Vishmerecha. Yer Adonai Ponaiv Elecha Vhunecha. Yisa Adonai Panaiv Elecha Vayasem Lecha Shalom. All right, let's turn to our passage out of the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, the Brit Chadashah, whatever you're used to calling it there. Again, this is the passage we're 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 going to be in for a while because this is what I what what we might call the par the the um the pericope, the section of Scripture that is is uh, captured our attention for the moment, and what we're doing is basically um going verse by verse through uh, what some people call uh, maybe the heart of Galatians chapter 3, which possibly is even the heart of the letter. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but I do know that um, this section is, is extremely important for Paul's uh, historical and theological argument because of the way it frames the life of our um, model of faith, Abraham himself. So we're going to read out of Galatians chapter 3. Uh, let me j Before I do that, let me just check Skype. Looks like we might have had a few more people join. Oh, good. All right. Looks like we have a few more students jumping in. Thank you for muting your mics uh, if you join uh, uh, as well. I hope you can see my screen. Uh, we're going to read Galatians 3, and we're going to be in the ESV is the one I'm using. And because of the chiastic structure, instead of starting in verse 10 where most... 
um, Bibles put the beginning of the section. I'm going to back up one verse to verse 9 and read down through verse 14 like that. So let's read the English, and then we'll read the Greek right afterwards. Galatians 3, 9 through 14, ESV reads, quote, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, as uh, as we're going to see when we read through the Greek here, if you're careful to catch it, uh, you could probably catch it in English as well, the word faith itself is used, I think, Eight times in nine verses, or nine times in eight verses, something like that. But the point is it's used quite a bit. And so we're going to really kind of talk about this word faith again tonight. Uh, but let's look at the um, Greek first. Let me pull up the SBLGNT, the Greek New Testament that I'm fond of using. For those of you, Again, for those of you who are on the screen, you should be able to see uh, the Greek uh, script there in the middle of the screen. And let's start again right here. Verse 9, read down through here. Okay. The Greek reads, Hoste oi ek pistios eulogunti sunto pisto abraham. That was verse 9. Verse 10. Hosoi gar ex ergonamu asin hupa katarin asin gegraptai gar hati epikataratas pas has uk emene pasin tois gegramenois en to biblio. Tu, tu namu tu poiesai auta. Verse 11. Scroll up a bit. Uh, verse 11. Hati de en namo udes decaiutai para to theo delon hati ho decaias epistios zesitai. Verse 12. Ho de namos uc estin epistios al ho poiesais auta zesitai en autois. Verse 13. Christas hemas exegorison ek teis kataras tunamu genamanas huper hemon katara hati gegramenai epikataratas, I'm sorry, gegraptai epikataratas pas ho kremamenas epikatsulu. Verse 14, hina eis, which is the final verse, hina eis ta ethne eulagia. To Abraham Genetai, in Christo Jesu, hina te tain uh, Evangelion to uh, Pneumatas Labomen Dietes Pistios. And that's going to do it for the Greek passage, the Greek rendering. All right, uh, let's turn now to the commentary. As I mentioned um, a moment ago, Last week we studied the first part of Galatians 3.12, which, as I'm recognizing, and, and other commentaries commentators do as well, is made up of two clauses. We've got, but the law is not of faith, and then we've got, the one who does them shall live by them. So we've got these two clauses, and right in the middle we've got this um, contrastive word, rather, which in the English kind of signals um, something different that Paul wants to talk about. But um, I... Last week, I, I apologize, I failed to, I, in my opinion, I failed to uh, clearly explain what I'm trying to ex 
get across in Galatians 3.12, the first clause. So I went ahead and rewrote a lot of it, and I don't want to reread the entire thing because that would just take, even if I just read what I rewrote, uh, I timed it. It would take me easily probably 15 minutes just to reread everything I wrote that I wrote last week. So instead of doing that, I'm going to give you kind of a um, um, an abbreviated version of what I wrote, mainly highlighting just the changes. So for those of you who are with me in the live class, kind of just follow along with me. Let me take, see if I can do this in like five or ten minutes. I just want to give you an overview of what I changed in Galatians 3.12, the first half, meaning this is this is to better explain what I wrote last week and what we taught about. And this will give us a better uh, head start into finishing Galatians 3.12 tonight because we're going to really just focus on the second half. All right, the first thing I did in the... Um, in the changed version, is I brought to the students' attention the fact that um, that in the original Hebrew, Paul doesn't really use verse breaks. In fact, if I'm correct, there's not even sentence breaks or, or spaces between the words. The, the original Greek is, looks just, looks like just a bunch of letters all stuck together with no break between the what we would call the verses or the or the sentences or the words themselves. In other words, each letter follows after one another. I, I believe that's what's going on. Um, if that, and since that's likely the case, uh, if I'm correct, at least I can say this confidently, there are no verse breaks. Paul didn't put verse 11, verse 12, verse 13. I think most people know that. But that being the case, if you look at verse 11 and 12 together, instead of separating them like we do in our English versions, then um, you'll end up with the two uh, verses reading something like, if, if you look at the last clause of verse 11 and read it along with the first clause of verse 12, then you'll see something peculiar. You'll see that Paul says, quote, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. And so when we read them that way, instead of separating the two verses, we can see that he uses these two phrases, ekpistios, which is by faith, in both clauses. And then the, the those two clauses themselves are separated by this contrasting Greek word, but, which is de. So in that sense, we would have Paul contrasting the the passage out of Habakkuk two with what I call the influencer, one of the influencers' uh, main theological points, which would be the law is of faith, right? They would be teaching each everyone that the law is of faith, but Paul comes along and says, "No, the righteous shall live by faith." is what the Torah says, but you say the law is of faith. No, that can't be right. The law is not of faith. See, see what I'm saying there? All right, that's the first change I made. I wanted to let the students know that I think it's best if we read the last clause, which is the quote from Habakkuk, with the last clause of, of verse 11 with the first clause of, of verse 12 and see that he's contrasting, he's making a contrast from that passage as well. But then he also then goes on to say the law is not of faith, rather. And then he uses another contrasting Greek word, which is al. It's not quite the same as de, but it functions similarly in the passage because he's still drawing this contrast. And the contrast this time is between the influencer's belief that the law is of faith, and Paul's going to say, no, the law is not of faith, rather, and meaning instead the way you need to understand the law is, and then he's going to make this quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which we're going to study tonight. So the first thing I'm trying to get you all to understand that I didn't really say very well last week, in my opinion, was that Paul uses basically Habakkuk 2.4 in one fashion, 
and he uses Leviticus 18.5 in another fashion. And as at, at the larger context level, these two verses describe two different sides of one coin. But when taken separately, if you just look at the two verses by themselves, that is Habakkuk 2.4 and Leviticus 18.5, they almost seem to be as if they are opposing one another. It's almost like Habakkuk is telling us that we need to live by faith, and that Levitic, and yet Leviticus is telling us that we need to live according to law. In other words, the man who does these things shall live in them or live by them. And this is basically the trap that many Christian commentators make, the mistake that they make, is that they see Paul pitting Leviticus 18.5 against I'm sorry, pitting Habakkuk 2.4 against Leviticus 18.5 as if um, as if Moses is describing one method of righteousness and yet Habakkuk is describing another method of righteousness. And they, the, many Christian commentators make that same mistake when they um, talk about Romans 10.5 which uses the same uh, Leviticus 18.5 passage. So I also brought that out uh, a little more clearly in uh, the rewriting of this con- of, of this section. The other thing I wanted to make uh, bring to your attention is that um, uh, the Judaisms of Paul's day were probably taking uh, this phrase: uh, the, "the law is not of faith." The law is not based of faith. They may have been interacting with a different meaning of the word law and a different meaning of the way we interpret the word faith. And so what I bring out, obviously, I, mean, I, I mentioned some of this last week, but when we say the law is not based on faith, we, we have to remember that Paul could have been using the word law there to refer to not just the law in general, which we did talk about that last week, but also could be referring to the law in, uh, in its more narrow sense of the works of the law. In other words, the circumcision, the food laws, the, 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 the Sabbath. In other words, the works of the law was these specific um, commandments that were lifted out of the law and elevated above some of the other commandments in a fashion so as to separate Jews from Gentiles to, to kind of draw what, what Dunn and Wright describe as demarcations, uh, a boundary, uh, what, what Dunn really likes to call boundary, boundary markers. Uh, things that separate Jews from Gentiles. And so we know that circumcision was being used that way in the first century. And of course that's one of the primary um, uh, theses of my own commentary is that uh, circumcision is kind of shorthand for Jewish ethnicity. So when Paul says the law is not based on faith, it could have been using one of two ways law. Either works of the law is not based on faith or does not proceed to faith or does not lead to faith or does not progress towards faith. And the other way he may have been using it is simply that the law is not based on faithfulness. The word faithfulness. Yeah, that's right. The thing I highlighted last that I didn't really um, explain very well last week is that in, in our treatment of the nuances of this first clause is that the word faith, and we're going to see this in, again tonight because I'm going to make a kind of a concluding remark for the whole verse. We're going to see that the word faith in the Greek, the, which can be sometimes translated as pistis and sometimes it's pistios, uh, just depending on uh, what other words are, are uh, what other words are in, in in relation in the sentence. But this word pistios, which we translate into the English as that with the noun faith, carried with it the idea of faithfulness, which is also a noun. But in English, we would we would use another word, which is actually a verb, which is believe or believing, and this. Uh, kind of hints at the idea of not just uh, a, a creed that one adheres to, meaning 
I believe in Jesus. I'm sorry, I, I have faith in, in God. I have faith in Messiah. But in the Jewish mind of, of Paul's day, faith also implied faithfulness, meaning actions done as a result of the faith that one claims to have. So faith isn't merely a creed. Faith always leads to actions. Faith is also a deed. And in the Hebrew language, as well as the Greek language, the, the nouns and the verbs are related to one another so closely that they can evoke the, the, uh, the, um, the nuances from one another. So you, you don't speak of faith in a static fashion. When you speak of faith in the Hebrew mind, it brings to mind the idea of ongoing faithful actions that we would call believing or doing or faithfulness. It's kind of similar, and I bring this out in my commentary last week, it's similar to the way the word trust in English has both a noun and a verb uh, meaning. Trust is, is a noun and a verb. And that's kind of basically the same way, same thing is happening in Hebrew and in Greek. We can see noun and verb working together. And if that's the case, then when, when, when the Judaisms of Paul's day read that the, the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, which is Habakkuk 2.4, which is quoted by Paul here in Galatians 3.11, as well as in uh, Romans 1.17, when Paul says the righteous shall live by faith or the just shall live by faith, then it's not unthinkable that they would have interacted with that verse on a level that also implies the just shall live by faithfulness. The person who's righteous by God shall live his life according to faith that leads to faithfulness. You understand what I'm saying? So I didn't really bring that out uh, very well uh, last week, but this time I made a nice little quote from a Christian pastor that describes that very nicely. And we're going to see that again tonight. And then lastly, the other thing that I changed a, a bit in uh, last week's commentaries, I drew these little um, visualized versions of what I think Paul is teaching and what I think the influencers are teaching. And so using step one, step two, step three fashion, uh, in Paul's theology, we had step one is faith, which is Abraham beginning, Abraham, which is defined as the beginning of covenant membership based on faith, viz, circumcision of the heart. Step two in Paul's mind would be Torah is Moses, which equals law given to all existing covenant members. And step three in Paul's mind is faithfulness, which is defined as covenant membership is for all who have faith in Messiah. Spirit-led faithfulness to Torah vindicates spirit-produced faith. However, when we contrast that with the way the influencers' theology was being understood by Paul, we end up with the, uh, this type of step one, step two. For the influencers, it works out like this. Step one is ethnicity, defined as Abraham being the beginning of Jewish identity and covenant membership, as indicated by physical circumcision. Step two in their theology was the Torah was defined as Moses' law given to keep Jewish Israel separate from idolatrous Gentile peoples. And then step three in the mind of the influencers would be faithfulness, as defined by uh, covenant membership and Torah are for Jews only. Law-keeping is vital for maintaining one's place in the covenant. And I gave, gave those little charts there so that you can see that, um, essentially, it's in all fairness to the influencers themselves, I don't think that they were simply, as, as the way we describe it in Christian terms, simplistically swapping the cart with the horse, meaning getting works before faith. Uh, rather, they were misunderstanding the covenantal signs that we read about in Abraham and in Moses and in so forth. And I, I think they were they were uh, interpreting the, 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 the 
they were misinterpreting the way that um, you're supposed to understand Abraham to Moses, etc. So we're going to kind of work with that tonight. Okay. Um, so basically, I, I went on to say that the law is not of faith is basically Paul based, uh, trying to say that um, uh, genuine covenant membership does not uh, is not produced by works of law or produced by the law even as a principle. The law itself is not designed to um, the law itself is not designed to grant salvation if we use the word salvation and faith in similar fashion. So basically, Paul is recognizing that the influencer's theology is backwards. Right, law and faith are in the wrong spot. They're 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 backwards in his in in his understanding of what the influencers are teaching, um, and that's basically how I understand the law is not a faith to be meaning. And we went through the the, the 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 hoops of showing you how what that might look like in the Greek. All right, let's turn now to tonight's commentary and start with the second clause, and uh, this should take about another twenty minutes, thirty minutes or so. So um, let's see if I can read most of it and then let uh, the commentary speak for itself and then go back and see if we can uh, hit some of the highlights. All right, so we are on the top of... We're about the middle of page 121, starting with the section entitled Second Clause. And what we're going to do is we're going to go down through the end of this section and we'll finish Galatians chapter 2, Colossians 3, verse 12. And next week we should be poised to start with the next verse in my commentary. Okay? Let's go. Here's what I have to say. Second clause, quote, The man who does these things shall live, will live by them, end quote. This is essentially a quote from Leviticus 18.5. Don Garlington, in a shorter commentary on Galatians, starts us off by reminding us of the popular Christian interpretation of Paul's use of Leviticus in Galatians here. Here's what Garlington has to say. Quote, Virtually every commentator recognizes that Paul, in some way or other, plays off believing and doing in verse 12. But in what sense are the two set in opposition? And by, let me just pause for a moment and tell you that Garlington's going to basically uh, restate what I've been stating all along, that faith and faithfulness are the, the sense of believing and doing, when, when we look at those two Greek and Hebrew words. All right, so Garlington says, but, one sense, but in one sense are the two set in opposition. The majority of scholars assume that they are mutually exclusive by the nature of the case. Faith, by definition, excludes works, and vice versa. In other words, faith is the Hebrew is the Habakkuk 2 passage, and works is the Leviticus 18 passage. Garlington continues, However, in historical perspective, any dichotomy between believing and doing in the Jewish schema is simply off-base. Why? Because Judaism was and is as much a faith system as Christianity. This is a point that E.P. Sanders brought out so carefully for us in 1977. Garlington goes on to say, The inseparability of faith and obedience in the Hebrew Bible is still intact. But in both Paul, I'm sorry, but in Paul, both have been refocused on Jesus, the crucified Messiah. It is true that verse 12 poses a problem for this reading. Its proposition, quote, The law is not of faith, end quote, is buttressed by the words of Leviticus 18.5, quote, the one who does them will live in them, end quote. On the usual interpretation, Paul is taken to mean that, quote, the law has nothing to do with faith, end quote, in this sense. Whereas the law required performance, the gospel enjoins only faith. So that's the standard interpretation of what Christians believe Paul's trying to teach. 
Garlington, however, goes on to say, as the argument goes, anyone who would be justified, quote, on the basis of works, end quote, must reckon seriously with what the Torah itself says, quote, the one who does them will live in them, end quote. However, Garlington now goes on to clarify, this more or less traditional interpretation falters for two reasons. Number one, doing the law, according to the context of, Levit of Leviticus 18, is not performance, but the exercise of faith within the parameters of the covenant. And number two, the reason why the traditional Christian interpretation of these two passages fails, according to Arlington, is two, neither the Old Testament nor later Jewish theology recognizes a distinction between doing and believing. That is, they are the two sides of the same coin, end quote. And we see that footnote number 117 was lifted from the paulpage.com, in which you can find uh, Garlington's entire Shorter Galatians commentary there. All right, let's go on to uh, read my own commentary. Top of page 122. I go on to say, We also learn from Garlington that perhaps a significant number of Jewish teachers of Paul's day likely interpreted the, quote, live, end quote, of Deuteronomy 18.5, not merely as life in the here and now, but also as life in the age to come. Now, let's read another quote from Garlington. Uh, it reads, quote, Indeed, live does primarily mean, quote, to go on living, end quote, in the land, especially in view, a view of Ezekiel chapter 20, the very first commentary on Leviticus 18.5. By the way, I highly recommend that you as students go back and read Ezekiel chapter 20, read the entire chapter there. He, uh, Ezekiel actually quotes Leviticus 18.5 about two or three times, and he gives this really nice commentary on what, he, what, uh, what Ezekiel understands the word live means there. So let's keep reading. Garlington goes on to say, Even so, we must reckon with the fact that in certain strands of Jewish interpretation, the eschatological dimension is very much present. For example, the Qumran Manual of Discipline makes, quote, everlasting blessing and eternal joy in life without end, end quote, the extension of, quote, long life, end quote, and, quote, fruitfulness, end quote, here and now. And you can compare uh, that Qumran document to Daniel 12.12, 12, as well as the, uh, the wisdom literature that shows up in the apocryphal uh, sections of scripture that, that most Christians don't use. Um, but that would be Wisdom 2.23, as well as 2 Maccabees 7.9, 4 Maccabees 15.3, and 4 Maccabees 17.12. If you have a Catholic Bible, you can look up those, those deuterocanonical books as well. I'm sorry, those apocryphal books. All right, uh, um, Garlington continues. Conversely, reserved for those who follow, quote, the spirit of falsehood, end quote, which is a reference to the apostates, are a multitude of plagues now and, quote, everlasting damnation, end quote, eternal torment, quote, end quote, and endless disgrace, quote, end quote, hereafter. And that's a lift from the, uh, the 4, I'm sorry, from the 1QS4, uh, 12-14. Garlington concludes, likewise, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan and Targum Onkelos to Leviticus 18.5 both posit everlasting life as the reward of doing the Torah. And you can compare that to that question that the uh, the ruler posed to Yeshua, how can one have eternal life in Luke 8, uh, 10, 25? End quote. Um, Garlington concludes by saying, indeed, such an eschatological slant on the life of Leviticus 18, 5 would have played readily into Paul's hands as he transposes the life of the Torah into eternal life 
in Christ, end quote. And um, the uh, footnote to 118 is lifted from the same uh, resource there to Garlington that you can get at thepaulpage.com. And so if you have a chance, you can do a Google search for the Targums online. You can read them online. Uh, they were basic, The Targum is basically an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew because in Paul's day, many of the Jewish people had lost their mother tongue of Hebrew and had begun um, had been more familiar with Aramaic itself, which is kind of a sister language to Hebrew, but it's not exactly the same thing. And so if they weren't versed in Hebrew and they weren't versed in Greek, well, then tar- uh, Aramaic was the language that they would have needed to uh, needed to have in order to understand what the Hebrew Torah was saying. So what the Targumist, uh, which was kind of a, um, a person who translated in the synagogue the Hebrew into Aramaic, what he would do is, as he translated the Hebrew scroll when he was reading it out loud in the public reading in, in, in the synagogue, what the Targumist would do is he would, as he translated the Hebrew, instead of just translating word for word, he would actually give some commentary. He would insert some paraphrasing. And these texts of Aramaic from, from Hebrew into Aramaic eventually not only got um, uh, verbally translated, but they also eventually got written down and they've been preserved for us in the form of what we now call the Targums. And they are available to anyone. And what they are really a really neat inside look into the way that some of the first century Jewish translators would have interacted with the original Hebrew text uh, in their own mind, as is translated into Aramaic. And of course, then today we translate the Aramaic over into English. And what we end up with is some really neat paraphrasing of the original Hebrew. And in one of these paraphrases, the Targum uh, Pseudo-Jonathan and, and Targum Ankalost, on this passage to Leviticus 18.5, instead of merely saying, um, the man who does these things shall live by them, and the live referring to simply life in the land, in other words, life in the here and now, the Targum actually says that he shall have eternal life through them. Now that's the interesting point that Garlington's trying to make, and Paul probably obviously aware of that point, perhaps played off that phrase eternal life and said maybe this refers to life as you uh, eternal life if in fact you apply uh, the faith of the of the Messiah, that the Torah is speaking about to faith in Messiah so <clears throat> let's keep reading my own commentary and see if I agree with the tar- with that's the if that's the best way to understand the passage uh, in the end, I'm going to tell you that I really don't think that that's the better way to understand uh, Leviticus 18.5 because I don't think that's what Moshe was intending uh, the readers to understand when he wrote Leviticus 18.5. So here's what I have to say in my commentary. Quote, So which one is it? Does Leviticus promise life in the land of Israel? Or does it speak of life in the age to come? With these data to get us started, let us attempt to uncover Moshe's intended meaning of Leviticus 18.5 and its relevance for Galatians 3.12 by allowing Paul to explain it for us. Shaul will eventually go on to use Leviticus 18.5 again in Romans 10.5 in a similar discussion about covenant membership. The meaning of Leviticus 18.5 is formed, in my opinion, by the context of the passage as a whole and obviously warrants careful study. But before we do that careful study, let's have some fun with the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts. Alright, let's do kind of what Paul would have done as he interacted with the Hebrew of Leviticus 18.5, he probably went back and looked at the Hebrew, the Masoretic, and then he looked at, like we would do, at the Levit- at the um, LXX version, and then he probably also had access to the Targum. So he had, in essence, I imagine Paul had access to three different language versions of Leviticus 18.5. 
Firstly, he had the Masoretic Hebrew. Secondly, he had the um, the Septuagint Greek. And thirdly, he had the Targumic Aramaic. And he had all three of those. And let's see what he probably would have come up with. First, let's read in English, because most of us can't today can't read either one of those three ancient languages. First, let's read it in English. This is the ESV once again, and this is why I didn't use it in my liturgy earlier. But we did read this last week, so now we're going to read it. Leviticus 18, 1-5. This will give us kind of the shorter context of perhaps what Moshe is talking about. Leviticus 18, 1-5, quote, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Number 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Verse 4, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. And I've got a part underlined in my written commentary for following along. If a person does them, he shall live by them. That's the part that's underlined. I am the Lord. End quote. And of course, that's Leviticus 18, 1-5, with the underlined part being the, ver- the part that Paul brings into uh, Galatians 3.12 for us. All right, if you're following along with me in the written notes, let's read the Hebrew as well. Uh, verse 1 reads, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Uh, verse 2, Verse 3, and that was verse three. Verse four. Et mishpatim. I'm sorry. Et mishpatai ta'asu ve'et hukutai adonai lohechem. And then the final pasuk, verse five. Ushmaratem et hukutai ve'et mishpatai asher yaase atem ha'adam v'chai behem ani adonai. And that's verse five. And the final passage where Paul says, if a person does these, he will live by them. Um, the, the Hebrew word, we're going to look at the Hebrew and the Greek here in a moment. So I just want you to be aware of the fact that um, Paul probably sought, like I think we should do now, he probably sought to first understand what does Moshe mean by these words. Regardless of what the Septuagint and the later Targum may have uh, interpreted what Moshe said. I think Paul, firstly, primarily wanted to seek Moshe's understanding. So let's work from that. Um, I say in my commentary near the top of page 123, interestingly enough, in the Septuagint, the LXX, the Greek of the verb, the Greek of the verb does, right? The man who does these things shall live by them. The Greek of the verb does, which is poiesas, in the phrase, uh, the person does them, of Leviticus 18.5, is actually what we call an aorist active participle verb. And this type of verb is often used to denote a general ongoing past. Look at footnote number 119 for a moment. Uh, this, is, this is actually somewhat important for people who like to get technical with the Greek. The aorist tense, the Greek aorist, is said to be, quote, a simple occurrence or summary occurrence, end quote, 
without regard for the amount of time taken to accomplish the action. This tense, this heiress tense, is often referred to as the punctiliar tense. Punctiliar in this sense means viewed as a single collective whole, that is a one-time point, a one point in time action, although it may actually take place over a period of time. In the indicative mood, the aorist tense denotes action that occurred in the past time, often translated like the English simple past tense. And I lifted that uh, definition of the aorist tense of um, poesas uh, from the uh, NewTestamentGreek.org uh, uh, dictionary there, their, their lexicon. So let's go back up into my commentary. So basically we've got this uh, poesas uh, here in the Greek. When Paul says the person who does these things, the person who does them shall live by them. The word does there is this this um, aorist uh, tense. And this word um, is what basically the, 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 what I'm, when I boil it down, what, Paul's, what I'm trying to say is that um, this word is actually kind of a participle, meaning it's ongoing. Um, and thus most translations, I say, rightly show having, which is the participle, done, passed. And so we have those two uh, parts of speech. In other words, the person having done them shall live by them, meaning it's a past tense. However, in the original Hebrew, this is where it gets a little interesting, in the original Hebrew, this same verb, ya'aseh, is actually an imperfect verb tense. In other words, it's a future tense, meaning the person who will do them shall live by them, the person who will do them. It's a future tense. So, isn't that interesting? Moshe writes a past, Moshe writes a future tense, but the Septuagint Greek uh, puts it as an ongoing past tense, the person having done them. That's one of the first changes between the two versions. I go on to say in my commentary, likewise, since we reference the LXX, which is Septuagint, and the Hebrew text, let's also take a quick peek at the Greek manuscripts of our Galatians verses. Remember, some of you aren't aware of this, but many Greek manuscripts come in, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek uh, that we have today is not just simply one manuscript. There are many, many different manuscripts uh, that have been preserved for us, and sometimes we end up with what are called variants, textual variations in the, in, in the, in the transmissions that have been copied uh, from person to person. So we end up not knowing exactly which ones might have been the original and which ones might have been either copious mistakes or perhaps additional um, uh, clarifications made by the person who's making the copy. So, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, so don't think that... Don't think in the terms of well, there's got to be only one original one, and w and the one the, the one that's the original is the one that's the most accurate. That's not necessarily always the case. That's really kind of the way that um, Islam thinks of the Quran. They think that the only uh, authorized and official version is the one that's in the original Arabic, and that any reproduction into another language is really not a, a worthwhile translation at all. But I I don't think that's how we should treat the New Testament texts. On the contrary, the fact that we have so many differing manuscripts, but they all agree in theology, but just differing minor points from here to there, maybe copy mistakes or slightly different variations from here to there, actually lends credibility to the truth of the New Testament texts themselves, because God was able to preserve the truth despite the fact that men themselves were copying it. Does that make sense? All right. So, um, let's take a quick peek at some of the Greek manuscripts of Galatians verse. In the Greek text of the Byzantine majority and the Greek Orthodox Church text, as well as in the two Textus Receptus manuscripts, Galatians 3.12 uh, 3, reads this way. In the Greek, um, we read, Ho de namas uk estin ek pistios al, ho poesas alta 
anthropos zesitai in altois. So if we were to take that Greek there and woodenly translate it, this is the Greek I just read for those of you who are in my written in my live commentary, I highlighted. If we were to take that, this is my own wooden translation, going word for word, trying to keep the syntax, the word order, intact. Here's what I ended up with. If I take these four manuscripts, which all kind of agree, those four, and um, uh, which are all basically the same. If we do this wooden word for word, it'd end up like this in the English. The moreover law not is out of faith, rather the having done these things person will live by them, end quote. Of course, the English translations always have to clean up that syntax because English speakers can't really follow that. Unless you're Yoda, I suppose you could follow along with that, right? Jedi Master Yoda? That's kind of the way he talks. All right, let's keep reading my commentary. By comparison, if we look at a, a few other different manuscripts, the Nestle and the Westcott and Hort manuscripts uh, leave out the Anthropos, which is translated into English as either man or person or human. So they don't have that. They instead show ho denamas uk estenek pistios al ho poesas alta zesetai in autois. And um, the uh, Tischendorf manuscript differs from all of these in that it alone has the conjunction Allah, which is translated into English as otherwise, but, rather, etc., instead of al, like most of the other uh, manuscripts do. So, Tischendorf, uh, Tischendorf is the only one that has the extra alpha letter at the very end of this contrastive conjunction word al. Alright, nevertheless, the meaning of Allah with al is essentially identical with the other um, manuscripts there. So, let me go ahead and tell you what I make of all of this, um, what of this foray into the, 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 the into the Greek manuscripts, as well as the my mention of the uh, the LXX and the Hebrew. As fun as that was, as as entertaining as that might be for those of you who are really uh, uh, interested in uncovering the original Greek and things like that, what I have to say in my commentary is this: the research into the Hebrew and the Greek may, in fact, be theologically pointless. I don't believe it significantly changes the meaning of the verse, whether the verb tense describes Torah obedience is in the past or in the future. In other words, whether Moshe has it in the future tense, where that the person is will be doing things shall live by them, or if the Septuagint changes that into a participle past, you know, having done them things. In my opinion, the theology of the, pa- the verse is not significantly impacted by the, the, the change in those words, right? However, in my opinion, the central message of the verse itself is significant enough for Shaul to have it form the support behind his theology of the first, quote, law is not of faith, in quote, clause. And the reason I said it is because the word life in this verse speaks of living safely in the land of promise, namely Israel. And I say that because I think that is really primarily what what Moshe is referring to in Leviticus 18.5, because we can see from the context that he talks about going into the land and not uh, not imitating the lifestyle of the pagans of Egypt that from which they um, were freed from. Basically, Moshe is telling the Israelites, "Don't live like the pagans when you don't live like the pagans that you were freed from in Egypt, and don't live like the pagans that you're going to encounter in the land of Canaan. Don't live like either one of those pagans. Instead." I, the Lord, want you to live according to my Torah. That's what God is telling Moses to tell the people in Leviticus 1-5. through And if you live according to my Torah, you will have a long life in the land. And if you don't believe that that's the way Moses intended 
Leviticus 18, 1 through 5 to be interpreted, then just go back and read uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 by yourself, and you'll see that Ezekiel interprets the Leviticus passage that way, and therefore, I believe that it's way, that's the way Paul wants us to understand it as well. So, germane to his point, as I keep reading my commentary, germane to his point, Paul's point, is the fact that in not doing, in the, in the not doing of, or having done, if we want to really talk about the, the, the Hebrew there, in the not having done the commandments that results in covenant membership, uh, I'm sorry, let me read that sentence again, but germane to his point is the fact that it is not the doing or having done the commandments that results in covenant membership. Rather, the existing covenant member will in fact govern his life in accordance with God's laws. You understand what I'm saying? In Leviticus 18.5, it's not the people doing the commandments that become covenant members. In other words, when we read Leviticus, the people have already experienced Exodus chapter 20. What took place at Exodus chapter 20? The giving of the, of the ten words and, the, and essentially the, 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 the forming or the ratifying of the Mosaic covenant itself. The entering into covenant with God through the Mosaic words. That's what took place at Sinai way back in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And so when we read Leviticus 18.5, historically the people were already covenant members. They are not doing the Torah to become covenant members. They are instead walking into rules and laws that will describe the lifestyle of existing covenant members. So, as I read the top of page 124 in my commentary, to Paul, the sequence of events spelled out in Leviticus undermines the theology of the influencers, which Paul rejects with this counterstatement, quote, the law is not based on faith. Everyone following me? The law is not based on faith. Why would Paul have to say the law is not based on faith? Because obviously, the influencers were thinking that the law is based on faith. And what would that mean? Well, let's read and see what I, if I explain what the law is based on faith means. And if I don't say it in my commentary, then I'll just tell you after we're done. My conclusion to Galatians 3.12 as a whole is this. In reality, with all the biblical data to work from, Paul likely had at least these three sequentially important concepts to work with in choosing the closely reasoned theology of this verse. So permit me to play with the biblical concepts of faith and faithfulness by displaying this as faith with bracketing fullness for a moment. All right. So I'm kind of creating a new word, the word F-A-I-T-H bracket F-U-L N-E-S-S, in bracket. So it's the word faithfulness, but I'm trying to really visually get you to see that faith and faithfulness to the Hebrew thinker are intertwined, and they're hard to separate the way that Christianity often separates the concept of faith from faithfulness. All right, consider this sequence. All right, you guys ready? I hope this doesn't lose anyone. Consider this sequence. Faith leads to law. Faith progresses to law, which progresses to faithfulness. If we focus on the sequence of the first two, then law is out of faith. That is, law comes after faith. Moses comes after Abraham. And I'm playing with that Greek word ek that we talked about last week because of the word ek in Greek, this very tiny little preposition, um, captures the idea of source, meaning out from with an impact on the object that uh, has the source, uh, or the object that is the um, the direct object of the source. So we have something that moves from something and then makes a direct impact on something else. 
moves from A to B. And, and the, the import of this word is that there's this idea of source material. Where does it, where's the source of something and where is it, le- where is it going? So it, it, it kind of describes a progression. So faith leads to law or faith uh, historically progresses towards law and then progressively or historically progresses towards faithfulness. That's my first uh, sequence that I want you to see. Right, Fate, Moses does come after Abraham in that historical sequence. Moses came, uh, Abraham came first. Moses came second. Yet, I go on to say in my commentary, if we focus on the sequence of the last two only, right? There's three words. There's faith and law and faith, or faith and law and faithfulness. If we focus only on the last two words, which is law and faithfulness, the, um, then faithfulness indeed does proceed from genuine faith. All right, if we focus on the I'm sorry, if we focus on the first faith and the last faith, then we see that faith comes before faithfulness. So I, I hope I'm not losing anyone here. There are three words in view. There's the word faith, then there's the word law, then there's the word faith again, and the and the second word faith, which is the third word in the sequence, actually implies the idea of faithfulness. So it depends on how one focuses on the biblical text and and the meanings of the words. I like to think that the influencers looked at the word, the first word, faith, and for them, this was describing Abraham, and it described his uh, the act of him becoming circumcised. And the reason they call it faith is because in their mind, uh, circumcision was given by God, and uh, the covenant of Abraham describes God's election of Abraham. Abraham didn't choose himself to be elected. Abraham was the recipient of this election uh, from God. And in fact, it was God who called Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12. It wasn't Abraham who was seeking after God. God God called Abraham and Abraham responded. So the influencers would think that the first faith is essentially a description of his uh, faith to become circumcised. The next word law to the influencers would describe the law of Moses, which would later, uh, which would of course then um, give the parameters of obedience for the circumcised person. And then the final word, faith, which the influencers would also recognize as faithfulness, I think describes what we call the maintenance of Torah. In other words, the necessity of the existing circumcised Jewish covenant member to remain within the stipulations of law in order to avoid being uh, avoid the penalty of being cut off from the covenant that was made with Abraham. Understand what I'm saying? So faith, law, faith, if we look at it from the point of view of the influencers, then for them, there's nothing wrong with, the, with their theology. They would think, well, hey, we're getting it right. Right? They're not, they're not putting cart before the horse like Paul is teaching. But if we use Paul's theology, then the first word faith, when centering on Abraham, actually describes not, it doesn't focus primarily on the, the physical act of circumcision so much as it focuses on the heart circumcision that Abraham displayed when, in Genesis 15:6 he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In that act, in that description, that in that verse where Moses describes Abraham's faith as being counted as righteous, for Paul, that's the description of the word faith. And therefore, for Paul, Abraham is the father of faithful Jews and Gentiles who both imitate Abraham in heart circumcision, not necessarily imitating Abraham in physical circumcision. See what I'm saying? 
So Paul still starts with Abraham, just like the influencers do. And he has to start with Abraham because that's what the Torah starts with. So Paul and the influencers were on the same page when it came to the person that they started with. And they were also on the same page when it came to who was the primary um, um, uh, person to, to imitate in their theology. Paul wanted the Gentiles to imitate Abraham, and the influencers wanted the Gentiles to imitate Abraham. The sharp difference between these two people groups, between the influencers and Paul, I believe, is that the influencers were focusing on physical circumcision, and it's tied to the physical covenant that Abraham is entering into. And yet Paul is focusing on spiritual circumcision or heart circumcision and the way that it ties a covenant member into the uh, uh, spiritual covenant that Abraham was entering into by faith in God. See the difference? And so for Paul, the first faith is heart faith. It's faith in God, which equals faith in Messiah. And the second word, law, for Paul, in my little sequence of these phrase, of these words, faith, law, faith, the second word, the middle word, law, for Paul, is the Leviticus 18.5 passage. It's the giving of the Torah at Sinai. It's the fact that law comes 430 years afterwards in the life of an existing covenant member, an existing Abrahamic covenant member, and it comes along in order to give the existing covenant member a blueprint for daily living. And that phrase daily living is the word faithfulness in my third word there. So for Paul, faith is Abraham. The word law is Moses. And the word faithfulness is the ongoing lifestyle of an existing covenant member as described in the pages of the Torah. See my point? In other words, for Paul, the last word faith, which is, I'm, used, I'm playing with this word faith, faithfulness. For Paul, faithfulness is, is important because it's exactly what James says, where he says, faith without works is dead. For Paul, James and Paul are are in agreement that the Torah is necessary in the life of an Abrahamic covenant member because genuine works equals genuine fruit equals vindication of genuine covenant membership in the first place. In fact, if one does not produce genuine fruit or genuine works in their life, then Paul would be then agreeing with James that if there's no works, then there must not be any faith. There must not be any Abrahamic faith. So if I were to fill in what James is saying, if there are no works according to the Mosaic Covenant, in other words, obedience to the Torah, then there is no genuine Abrahamic faith in the life of a person who claims to be a believer in God. Is everyone following me? I hope no. I, don't hope I didn't lose anyone. So it's really how one interprets the historical passages. So let me close this way. My final paragraph in our look at uh, of uh, Galatians three twelve with Paul's quote from Leviticus eighteen five. Here's what I have to say: within this smaller live context argument, which was forming the two innermost points of our six part chiastic structure. Remember, this is my uh, kind of my uh, conclusion to. Um, uh, Galatians 3.12. Remember I described that in the chiastic structure there are these two most inner points of the six-part chiasmus begun in Galatians chapter 3 verse 9 and working our way out, all the way down to Galatians 3.14. we got these two words live, which uh, these are the two words that I think are the innermost point, meaning the central crux of Paul's argument. I say in my commentary that we can easily imagine that this may well be the heart of Paul's pericope. Because in Leviticus, the writer Moshe describes the lifestyle that is the living, 
of an existing covenant member as characterized by obeying the law spelled out by the Torah. This is similar to the righteous man living by his faith slash faithfulness in Habakkuk 2.4. Remember how I, uh, I, I brought it to your attention that in Paul's day, Habakkuk 2.4, which is the, right, the, the, the just shall live by faith, could as easily have been understood as the just shall live by faithfulness. Because the word faith and faithfulness are, are, are closely related with one another. And we can't lose sight of that fact when we're working with this idea of faith. But sometimes we need to focus on the, the static aspect of faith, and sometimes we need to focus on the ongoing aspect of faith. We just need to let the context determine which one is in view. So, I go on to say that, remember that Habakkuk 2.4, as used by Paul just a verse earlier in Galatians 3.11, was actually um, understood by the influencers also uh, as the just shall live by faith, uh, but they probably... Um, they probably also were banking on the idea that the just shall live by his faithfulness. In both verses, faithfulness, right, in, in both Habakkuk 2.4 as well as uh, Leviticus 18.5, in both verses, faithfulness, that is right living, flows from genuine faith. That is really the, the central point of what I'm trying to get you as students to understand, that Paul would want his Galatian readers to understand. Faithfulness, which is right living, flows from genuine faith. This is James all over again. Works must follow after faith. If, if faith is genuine, then, gen, then works will also follow. Paul refers to the Leviticus position as clearly described in the previous verse. Now it is evident in the ESV. If we were to go back and look uh, uh, real quick, let me see it here. Give me a second. In um, Galatians 3, verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous live by faith. The first clause of verse 11, now it is evident, meaning uh, some version translated, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, what I'm trying to say in my commentary here is, in the end, is that according to Paul, this is a no-brainer. Anyone reading through the Torah can clearly understand, not veiled, but clearly understand that right, that faithfulness, that right living flows from genuine faith. So, Paul expects his readers and opponents alike to come to the same conclusions as he. And what is that? Genuine and lasting covenant membership with its faithfulness to Torah obedience do not precede genuine faith. And that's basically the understanding, my understanding of Galatians 3.12 in a nutshell. Don't get the cart before the horse. Genuine covenant membership is not secured by becoming ethnically Jewish. Genuine covenant membership is secured by placing one's genuine faith in God, just like Abraham did in Genesis 15.6, allowing God to write the law, uh, write his his laws on your heart. If I kind of jump ahead of myself and describe Ezekiel thirty eight and and Jeremiah thirty one all over again, but the point is, a genuine faith, a genuine covenant member, is first recognized by God as genuine because he has genuine faith in God, which equals genuine faith in God's Messiah Yeshua. So, so the beginning of genuine covenant membership begins in the heart, not necessarily in the flesh. However. Paul's point is that once God recognizes one as a genuine covenant member in the heart, this 
will, because of the active work of the Spirit that Paul describes in the first part of, of, of this chapter in Galatians 3, the first few verses, the work of the Spirit that he describes, right, the hearing of faith and things like that, because of the active and ongoing work of the Spirit, what we might call the progressive work of sanctification in the life of a genuine believer, this will, this genuine faith in God will and must and will proceed towards genuine faithfulness to the words of God. In other words, genuine faith will lead towards genuine obedience, which is always described in the pages of God's word. Genuine obedience is outlined by God's blueprint for living, which is, of course, the Torah itself. And today, that, of course, would include the New Testament, the New Covenant writings, the Apostolic Scriptures. So, in conclusion, basically, Paul expects his readers and opponents alike to come to the same conclusion as he did. Genuine and lasting covenant membership with its faithfulness to Torah obedience do not precede genuine faith. On the contrary, genuine and lasting covenant membership followed by faithfulness to Torah is the natural expected result of genuine faith in God and His Messiah, Yeshua. End. Did everyone get it? I hope that that very lengthy exposition on Galatians 312, in my opinion, uh, helps pave the way towards us to better understand um, the book as a whole, and specifically this little section where Paul kind of zeroes in for a moment on uh, the way that the influence were misunderstanding and misusing the biblical texts. As I mentioned last week, I think it's unfair for us as 21st century Christians to just simplistically say, well, gosh, how could they, st- how could they misunderstand that you can't work your way into heaven? Are they so? Are they daft? Are they dumb? Can they not? Can't they read the English? Can't they understand the Hebrew simply that the law is not of faith and that that works don't um, get you into heaven? Uh, you got to understand though that from the influencer's perspective, the act of physical circumcision was not a work. In their perspective, it was not a work any more than the act of salvation, the act of uh, believing in Jesus for us is a work. And in fact, um, Christ, most Christians would describe. Uh, the act of saving faith as um, not a work in the sense that we're striving to save ourselves, but instead it is the election of God, is the it is the the um, the uh, uh, the birthing process of God bringing faith to us, where we in an otherwise state of being spiritually dead could not affect that uh, that that action in the first place. In other words, whether you are Calvin or whether you are Armenian whether you're Arminian, God has to take the first step. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Calvinists would simply say that it's God's election that brings us into the saving knowledge of Yeshua, and the Arminian would simply call it uh, the prevenient grace that God gives us so that we can make the choice on our own. Right? It's the free will of the Arminian that is, that is um, uh, activated by the prevenient grace that God um, uh, did first. And the Calvinists would simply say it's the, it's the elective uh, work of God that draws us into that um, um, place where we make a decision for Yeshua as well. So in my opinion, there's not really a sharp disagreement between the Calvinists and the Arminians in that sense. But the point Paul's trying to make is that the first step is also made by God. The first step is made by God. God is the one who recognized Abraham's uh, response God is the one who, who saw into the heart of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 and, and then declared Abraham as a righteous person way back in Genesis 15, 6. And for Paul, this all took place before Abraham was circumcised. This all took place before Abraham received physical circumcision in, in Genesis chapter 17. And that for Paul becomes the central point of his theology 
in, in teaching the Galatians that they too, like Faith or Abraham, don't have to first to become physically circumcised in order to be counted as righteous by God. They simply need to imitate Abraham by placing their genuine faith in God, which historically at this point in time means placing one's faith in Messiah Yeshua. And that will count towards genuine covenant membership and launch the individual towards uh, faithfulness to God's ways. In other words, keeping the Torah. And even then, the keeping of the Torah will be done under the power of the Spirit and not by one's own flesh the way that the influencers were describing it. Okay? So I hope everyone's following along with me. This is going to help us uh, continue to understand how Paul is going to describe that Yeshua redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse and how that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles because Yeshua actually went outside of the of the gate to just, to use the, the Hebrews description Yeshua actually in essence identified with the Gentiles by taking on the curse that was otherwise described for those who were in fact covenant breakers and Paul's going to get into that next week and we will too and when we get into uh, Galatians 3:13 and 14 but for now let's close the commentary down as always I went a little over I didn't stick to my 45 minute time frame but I pray that the students who are in the, in the live class with me will grant me a measure of forgiveness for doing so. Let's close in prayer and hopefully uh, you can join me again next week. Lord I bless you and thank you for the uh, opportunity to share with the students. I thank you that you've given them a heart to understand and a desire to press in the way that I am also pressing in. Lord we are so grateful that you have stepped into history and have uh, taken on the curses so that we could be re uh, released from them. As we place our faith in you, Lord, we realize that um, we change. We change in the spirit. We change on the inside. We know that, Lord, it's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. We cannot. We do not have the ability to reach into the in, inner heart of ourselves, into the into the in into the heart of our of a man, and change the heart. We can't do that. That's why you have said that you have to change the heart. You are the one who circumcises the heart that we read about in Deuteronomy. You are the one who softens the heart that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 38. You take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And in doing so, you are the one by your spirit who writes the, the words of your laws on our hearts so that we can walk in them, so that we too can be faithful to the covenant Otherwise, Lord, there's no way that we can truly be faithful to your words because we don't have your words in our heart. Lord, help us to continue to hide your words in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Help us to be Yeshua-centric. Help us to, to, to be filled with the Spirit like Paul tells us to do in the book of Ephesians. Help us to continue to forgive one another uh, even as you have forgiven us like you've taught us in the book of Matthew. And help us to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Yeshua, giving us uh, a strength and a desire to witness to other people around us. For indeed, there are so many people who have not yet heard the good news and responded to it. Thank you, Father, for all of these things, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>